I bid you welcome to the second episode of season two of Hidden in Plain Sight or HIPS, the podcast. In the first season, we posit that the renowned Elizabethan author Christopher Marlowe did not die in Deptford in 1593, but actually survived and lived to write the plays and poems now attributed to Shakespeare. I'm Dr. Julian M, your host and moderator for a freewheeling discussion of this controversial topic with Dr. Peter Hodges and our friend and collaborator, Carol Paxton. Hello, Peter and Carol. Hello, Julian. You know, we've been very surprised, but pleased with the number of very interesting and thoughtful emails we received about season one. In this episode, we shall continue addressing some of our listeners' questions. And remember, dear listeners, we welcome your questions and feedback, so don't hesitate to contact us. And don't forget to tell your friends about our podcast. If anyone hasn't listened to our first season, that's a very good place to start, as Maria von Trapp would say, but I digress. To pick up where we left off, I want to turn to a question that was raised by our friend and colleague, Frida Barker. Frida, you are a very thorough listener, and you've noted a statement we made in the final episode of season one, which highlighted the famous and mysterious motto on the Cambridge portrait of Marlowe's. Frida concurs that the date and the words on the portrait tally with references in the sonnets, so it is most likely Marlowe after gaining his Bachelor of Arts in 1585. She points out, though, that officially we have to refer to it as the putative portrait of Christopher Marlowe. That was a very interesting point that she makes, and all credit to Frida, who's been, you know, in the society for many years and and really is a great resource. The thing that I want to say about that is we have 16 pieces of evidence that we've uncovered that we discussed in season one. There are five of them that relate specifically to Christopher Marlowe identifying himself. And of those five, one of them touches upon the idea that the motto that is on the putative portrait, which is translated to be destroyed by that which nourished me, that that motto was mimicked and echoed in at least two separate lines in the rival poet sonnet sequence. And so someone who knew that there was this motto on this obscure painting in 1598, someone who knew that then turned around and mimicked that thought and included it in two separate sonnets, that that's a strong indicator of Marlowe's identity if we believe that the portrait is by Marlowe. Now, Frida's turning that around on itself and saying, well, you can't count on the portrait as identifying Marlowe. And so I now would like to turn it about face again and say, well, if you take the piece of evidence that is the motto and you take it and you strike it from the 16, you still have 15 other pieces of evidence identifying Chapman, Hero and Leander, published by Chapman under Marlowe's name, and four other specific markers identifying Marlowe by himself 
that can be used to authenticate the portrait. And I wouldn't call that circular reasoning because I'm taking the portrait out of the discussion. And now I'm going to turn around and say, well, now, wait a minute. We found within the sonnets these two things that appear to mimic this detail in the portrait. And with everything else, we know that these lines were written by Christopher Marlowe. So doesn't that, along with the dates, along with the graduation of Marlowe from Cambridge and the portrait being found at Cambridge and the, you know, the age of the sitter being Marlowe's age at the time, doesn't all of that go to a deeper authentication of the portrait? And I think it does. I, I mean, I just, I think at that point, you have to stop calling it the putative portrait because we found separate proof that the portrait is real. I believe that Peter Ferry investigated this and he concluded that there was no other man associated with Corpus who would have been 21 in 1585. It was literally one. Most of the, in fact, all of these students were younger. The fellows, although young by modern standards, were older. Marlowe was literally the only man who was that age. So if the portrait is a portrait of somebody who was a member of, of Corpus Christi College, then he is literally the only person it can be. Yeah, and, I, we're, and we're basically saying the motto is a signature. Yes. And so we've got the signature twice, actually three times, if you include Sonnet 73, at which, you know, I'd urge everyone to pull off the shelf immediately and read line 12, consumed by that which nourished me. And, <laughs> and you just have the repetition of this idea in some very specific places where the author is trying to make his identity known by any means that does not have to include a photo ID. Perhaps we should mention Hamlet at this point. Uh, <laughs> a very famous soliloquy, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, goes on as if increased appetite had grown by what it fed on. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh. That wow. is brilliant. Oh, Carol, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you are a killer. <laughs> Half of my, uh, my uh, verse speaking is appalling. <laughs> wow. Okay, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. So there we have it in Hamlet, which also, as Tony Briggs pointed out in the speech with the player King, if you look at the very short line at the end, did nothing, nothing, of course, being an O or a zero, Dido and the player king's speech is of course Dido Queen of Carthage that enormously long speech that Aeneas gives at the banquet describing the final fall of Troy so uh, that's too very strong I think this is me <laughs> um, I think when we start plumbing the plays an awful lot can be made and has been made about all of the different thematic links with Marlowe's supposed exile and so forth. While I'm very, very, you know, sympathetic to all of that, I think we have to put a marker down where, you know, you can't cross into the land of fiction and try to use that to inform our theory. But any quote that resonates with the no longer putative portrait 
that becomes awfully definitive because that's a specific line that is being echoed from a source that almost, I mean, it's it's not even possible to imagine who else might have seen this. We can assume that that portrait was taken off the wall wherever it was displayed sometime after 1593 when Marlowe fell into disgrace. So there's not a lot of people who would have been able to even know that that existed. Certainly for 400 years, most people didn't know. Although there is the fascinating line in one of the Parnassus plays, which date from around 1600, where I think it's Gullio, the foolish character, uh, speaking, and the quote is approximately, Oh, sweet Mr. Shakespeare, I'll keep his portrait on my wall in the court court being Cambridge speak or what in Oxford would be called a quad or a quadrangle that the Harvard uses that too. So whether that is just a random line, I don't think it's specific enough, but it's, it's intriguing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot in that in those Parnassus plays that really raises eyebrows. And what it mostly leads me to think is that there were more people in on the gag than we normally think of. And that the kids at Cambridge, you know, it's just the kind of thing that would worm its way into adolescent minds seven or eight years after the event. And of course, we've already then had Pilatus Tamia and many other publications talking about Marlowe being dead when a lot of people are looking at the work that's being paraded on stage and saying, well, you know, <laughs> there's nobody else's name on it, so it must be Marlowe. Yes. And Daryl Pinkson's very astute linking of the situation with Marlowe to the situation in Hollywood during the McCarthy era, when band writers were producing scripts. And as we know, Dalton Trumbow actually won an Oscar, except Ian McClellan Hunter, who have accepted it. And literally hundreds and hundreds of people in Hollywood must have been aware at some level what was happening. But why would they have kept the secret? Well, it was in everyone's interest to keep the secret. Also, yeah, they were making money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. These, these band writers were, in many cases, the top of their profession. And as you say, Hollywood runs on money and on nothing else whatsoever. Therefore, we keep using them and we draw a discreet veil over it. And I can see the same thing being true as was true in 1953, in 1593. We all know, but we're not going to talk about it. There's nothing nothing like a secret for everyone to know it. Exactly. (laughs) I think it's a a general thing that so often when great revelations are promised and there's a big splash in the media, and you look and think, well, didn't everybody know that anybody? Didn't we all know that they were having an affair, that right. he was gay, that blah, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, Rock Hudson, what do you mean? You didn't know? Uh, wow. <laughs> you know. Please. <laughs> I just want to add that in her letter to us, Frida shared some personal memories of her visits to Cambridge with Dolly Raitt, regaling us with tales of their hospitality. I would tell you more, but our hope is we can coax Frida to join us as a guest someday so she can share those stories personally. All right, I believe we have time here for one more letter. 
Now, this one comes to us from another friend and colleague, Cynthia Morgan, who has recently published Every Word Doth Almost Tell My Name, 27 Essays from the Marlowe Studies. For those of you who don't know, this is the website that she has hosted for, well, as long as I can remember, and is an invaluable resource for all our listeners. We highly recommend the book and the website, so do check them out. As for her question, Cynthia writes, regarding Essex, it seems to me we find Marlowe himself telling us Whitgift was the cause of his troubles in the sonnets and the plays. I can't believe Essex would have done what you say. It wouldn't have helped him and it would have alienated him from other important people in his life. How do you want to respond to Cynthia? Yeah, I, you know, I've had a long conversation with Cynthia about this, and I think we just have to agree to disagree. First of all, I don't disagree that Whitgift was a very dangerous person to someone like Marlowe, but I don't think that that the case that Cynthia wants to make, and not Cynthia alone, but many other people that want to make the case that Whitgift somehow engineered the circumstances that gave rise to the danger that Marlowe got himself into. Principally, we have to take a look at the Dutch church libel and the, the genesis of it. Whitgift, you know, he had, in fact, got the queen to sign into law the right for him to go hunting heretics and to punish them at will. He didn't need to create a, a web of suspicion around somebody like Marlowe in order to haul him in and throw him on the rack. He did that with Thomas Kidd, and he didn't have any suspicion that Thomas Kidd was involved in anything slightly heretical. Nobody made those accusations against Thomas Kidd. They just stretched his bones for a couple of days, and the guy died of it a year later. So, it, you know, you don't need a pretext if you're Whitgift to nab someone that you know is an operative for a rival in the Queen's service, regardless, who has a, you know, a history of some surreptitious and questionable activity that you can already paint as being untrustworthy. You don't need to then go out and publish something like the Dutch church libel. If you want to have your way with Marlowe, just pick him up and squeeze him. And that's all it'll take. So I see Whitgift as being somebody who could be aimed at Marlowe and someone who could very usefully be used and convinced to become a threat to Marlowe. But then you have to find the person who's more likely to want to do that. And the thing that Cynthia and others leave out of their calculation is you know, Essex is involved in a struggle for place and prominence with the Queen. He's established a rival intelligence service, which he's funding privately, and he's attempting to unseat Lord Burley as the Queen's chief advisor. He's keeping close tabs on Burley. He's familiar with Burley's household. He's keeping close tabs on Southampton. He and Southampton later become co-conspirators in what was judged to be treason against the Queen. 
And Essex lost his head as a result of that. And Southampton spent two years in, in the Tower of London for it, barely escaped with his life. So these people are not all handsome gentlemen behaving themselves. They're operators. And my thinking of all of this ties this back to the sonnets and to Venus and Adonis as being publications that Essex would want to intercept and prevent from having a positive effect on Southampton because Burley wanted Southampton to marry his granddaughter so that he could then take control of the largest fortune in England. Burley was not a landed person. He had to make his money the old fashioned way. He couldn't charge rents. He had to do business with people. That's why he owned the Muscovy Company. He was a, in trade. He was a merchant, fundamentally a banker. Essex represented a whole other equation of how to how to manage, you know, an operation. He could just take the money that he raised off the land and use it to challenge Burley. So these two men are coming head to head. And one thing that Essex wants to do is prevent Southampton from marrying. Burley's trying to convince Southampton to marry. He encourages Marlowe to write Venus and Adonis for this specific purpose. And Essex seems to have found out about it because it was registered anonymously and because Essex ran a combine of individuals who kept an eye on what was happening at the stationer's office, which was a location that was specific. And when this popped up and the manuscript was sitting there, it was recognizably Marlowe's work. If it wasn't by Marlowe, it wasn't by anybody else that anybody could name. And at that moment, we get the Dutch church libel implicating Marlowe in all sorts of seditious activity. In addition to which, we have people like Chumley and Drury and Baines who have ties back to Essex. So I, I'm very convinced that it was Essex who was behind the danger that Marlowe managed to get into. And Essex stood to profit by it. It wouldn't have profited Whitgift one iota to put another head on a pike and put it outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. It wouldn't have mattered to him who he put on out there. He had already rounded up half a dozen people and had them garroted and hanged. So what's Marlowe to that? It doesn't mean a thing. I think Whitgift was more interested, if you like, in the what you might call the Protestant op opposition. That is to say, Underhill, Penry, well, Penry, Greenwood, etc., right? Who were almost certainly highly involved in the Mar Prelate affair because they were very much anti-Episcopalianism and wanted the Church to move the Church of England to become more Protestant, to lose bishops to lose the significant residual Catholic doctrine, small c Catholic, I, I'm meaning here. And I think Whitgift was more opposed to the activities of those men than he was to a, and if they even existed, a small number of intellectuals with advanced ideas about deism and anti-Trinitarianism, et cetera, et cetera. 
because the what we might call the Puritan faction represented something which had genuine appeal to some people, whereas the more intellectual forms of atheism, quote unquote, are not ever going to inspire mass popular arisings. Yeah, and Greenwood and Penry and the Marprelate people, their intention was to threaten Whitgift. They were directly challenging their use of the church for personal purposes, for corruption, and so forth. They were making very, very deliberate accusations that could threaten uh, Whitgift's place and uh, and position. In 1649, that faction got their way with the regicide of Charles I. That's right. Yes, very shortly thereafter, two generations later, and they unseated everybody. Precisely. So so that that was a real threat. But yeah, yeah, Marlowe, some intellectual from Cambridge fiddling around with, you know, he could have been throwing hexes on the floor. I don't think Whitgift. Now, when Whitgift became alerted to Marlowe, when someone else said, why don't you throw him in with the bundle that you're trying to burn? Whitgift was very happy to do that. But I just don't think that he did it on his own. That's all I'm saying. I think he had help, and I think that help was Essex. Well, well, what a fabulous start to series two. I think we have had quite an interesting discussion about the topics that have been sent to us by all you listeners. Cynthia, if you're listening, we'd like to invite you to come along and discuss your excellent book, Every Word Doth Almost Tell My Name. I think that about wraps it up for episode two. In our next episode, we will tackle the question that practically everyone has asked at one point or another. If Marlowe survived and wrote all the plays and poems attributed to Shakespeare, then what was Shakespeare doing all that time? Who was he? And how did he get involved in the first place? I'm sure our listeners won't want to miss our answer to that. So be sure to invite all your Shakespeare supporters for one of our most revealing episodes ever. And perhaps we might shed a bit more light on things that are hidden in plain sight.